Hi everybody, it's Aaron of The Aaron Metas Show here on the Stitcher app and also on Mixcloud as well. You can also find me on Twitter at Aaron Metas Show and on Facebook on facebook.com forward slash Aaron Metas Show. Before you all get excited, I'm not fully ready to come back and do my radio show as of yet, but I am going to leave you some really interesting audio. I attended, attended a debate recently uh, for the, for, that was hosted by the Manchester Debating Union. Uh, it uh, featured a uh, panel of all the parties that are currently taking part in the uh, European elections. Uh, this included Chris Davies, who is currently an MEP for the Liberal Democrats, uh, Angelia Stoja, who is the uh, MEP candidate for the Labour Party, uh, Jacqueline Foster, who is uh, the MEP for the Conservatives, uh, Laura Bannister, who is an MEP candidate for the Green Party, and Lee Slaughter, who is an MEP candidate for the UK Independence Party. So uh, I leave you with this uh, great debate. I want to thank the Manchester Debating Union for putting it on, and uh, I want to uh, thank you also for giving me the uh, ability to also put this uh, on uh, show for you as well for everybody to listen. If you want to check out the Manchester Debating Union, I urge you to go to mdu.manchester.ac.uk. I urge you to uh, follow them on Twitter, which is MDU Union. So uh, follow them on there as well and also search for them on Facebook as well because uh, the MDU could really use your support and also it, they're the guys who make these debates happen as well in our lovely city of Manchester our awesome city of Manchester so I leave you with this debate thank you very much for checking out the show I will hopefully be back very soon and uh, I will if I get the opportunity to do a uh, I would say a would I say a post-mortem or uh, would I say uh, I would say a post-show of the European elections, then I will definitely uh, be giving you that. And uh, But also, on top of this, there is also going to be a NHS uh, privatisation debate uh, that I also have uh, in, our arch- in my archive as well. So uh, give me the opportunity to uh, get that all sorted out, and I'll be posting that up on Mixcloud and Stitcher as well. So I'll leave you with this European debate. Enjoy your evening. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you very soon. But it's all fine now and everyone is now here. So welcome to Britain's Future in Europe. This is a panel discussion with local MEP candidates for the northwest of England in the upcoming EU elections. This is held in conjunction with UMSU and our campaigns officer Clifford, as well as the Manchester Debating Union and the Challenging Orthodoxy Society. So what we're going to be doing is each of the MEP candidates is going to give a short one-minute introductory speech describing what their position on the EU is. After that, we've got a mixture of pre-prepared questions and questions from you guys in the audience that will go out to each of the speakers. I ask the speakers, if I hit the gavel, to then be quiet because obviously we want everyone to get a chance to reply to the questions and give as many people as possible the chance to ask questions as well. So on our board, on our panel tonight, we have Chris Davies, MEP for the Liberal Democrat, MEP and MEP candidate for the Liberal Democrats. We have Angelique Steyer, and I'm really sorry if I said that wrong, who is an MEP candidate for the Labour Party. We have Jacqueline Foster, who is an MEP candidate for the Conservatives. Laura Bannister, who is an MEP candidate for the Green Party, and Lee Slaughter, who is an MEP candidate for UKIP. So hopefully we're going to get some really interesting debates and discussions going on tonight. Without any further ado, I would like to welcome Chris Davies from the Liberal Democrats to do his one-minute opening. Well, in terms of the in-out question, the Liberal Democrats are, are, are very clear. We believe we've got to be in the European Union. We believe it's essential for jobs. 
we believe it's essential to ensure that we have maximum influence over decisions which are bound to affect us. You can't shape decisions if you're outside the room where they're being made. And we also believe that we should value what the European Union has created. 28 countries, democ democracies now, although many of them were once dictatorships or totalitarian regimes with nuclear missiles pointing at us. 28 democracies working to promote human rights and to protect uh, the values which we hold dear. One thing though, in all this debate, in, out, you know, that's not what MEPs do. Our job is to try and fix legislation. The real questions for someone like me who deals with environmental legislation you should be asking is, how are you going to build a low-cost competitive economy? How are you going to get the balance right between protecting the environment and boosting industry? That's the day-to-day -day job, and it hadn't been touched in this uh, election campaign. Lack of training opportunities, expensive education costs, high house prices, lower, lower booking uh, wages, green prospects for young people, against the backdrop, back, backdrop of an existential questions. To be or not to be, that is inside Europe. But not much and not real and honest campaign about the benefits of the European Union. The Labour Party believes that we should firmly be staying inside Europe shaping the future, engaged, getting involved, and making sure that we're getting a good deal for people um, in Britain. It's in the national interest to send the European Union. Four point million jobs alone um, depends on our relationships with Europe. 881,000 young people, just like you, unemployed. And the parties that are governing at this moment deciding not to go for the European guarantee, which could guarantee you apprenticeships and a meaningful way to jobs and employment. We think that putting jobs, growth, economic stability at the heart of our work in the European Union is important. Making the European Union work for you and reforming it while we are active participants in the European Union. Only Labour will stand up for young people in the European Parliament and we have Apologies for keeping you waiting, negotiating my way to a car park. Um, anyway, um, okay. So the forthcoming election on the 22nd of May will be one of the most important elections, I think, for this generation. As most of you know, you've not had a say, or your parents or grandparents haven't had a say on this for nearly 40 years. And what I know as a serving member of the European Parliament uh, for 10 years is that this EU needs fundamental change. And it's only the Conservatives that are actually offering you that option. We want Europe to work better for Britain and we want to give the British people a final say in a referendum in 2017. So far we've cut the budget, we were told we couldn't do that, which is saving the taxpayer over eight billion pounds a year. We've taken the UK out of the Eurozone bailouts, <coughs> and we've also vetoed a new fiscal treaty, which was bad for business. And now we're fighting to renegotiate our membership of the EU, to bring back power to Britain away from Brussels, and to secure a better deal for British taxpayers. This is our plan and our time to deliver that change in Europe. And if you want that, 
then you have to vote for a strong team of Conservative MEPs who are backing David Cameron to deliver it. Both Labour and the Liberal Democrats oppose our plan, and UKIP can't deliver on a referendum. So only by voting Conservative on the 22nd of May will we have the opportunity for real change in Europe, for an in-out referendum. And only the Conservatives trust the British people to make that decision. and the Conservatives are not the only people that support having a referendum. Um, we believe that there should be a referendum. Democracy absolutely comes first. Um, you've never had a say on whether we're in Europe. Um, I've never had a say whether we're in Europe and the Green Party will deliver a referendum um, and our MEP that we hope to elect um, this week will support that. Um, so that's our first yes. We have three yeses on Europe. The second yes is yes to very significant reform. The, the European Union is really not what it should be. It should be a federation of the people of Europe, a place where we can come together and say, what's in our common interest? Like, what, what can we do that makes life better for all of us? That is not the kind of EU that we have at the moment. It's a club of corporations making rules to suit themselves. And um, so we need very, very significant reform of the European Union if it's going to do the job that we want it to do. Um, the last question, the third one, is it, it's still a yes, but it's a difficult one. Um, so I'm just going to start with a question. Of, of everybody here, put your hand up if you, uh, if you like the way that the current national government in this country has, has taken the country. Okay, so we have a few, but also quite a lot of uh, people that don't really like that. Of those that don't really like the way it's gone, how many of you put your hand up now if, you would, if because of that you want to dissolve the government and only have local councils in charge? Okay, <laughs> we have a few, but again, most, thank you, I'll be really fast. Most people don't think that dissolving a government or taking yourself away from a government is the best way of changing it. If you want to change things, you need to recapture it and make it do the things that you want it to do. UKIP's position is quite clear, and we're the only party that has this view of the world. The UK is one of the world's preeminent global trading nations. We don't need to be the province of a European superstate. It was mentioned a few seconds ago, four and a half million jobs depend on European Union membership. No, they don't. It was three million in the report, and the report's author says that it's not dependent upon, it's associated with. The World Trade Organization rules state that nobody can discriminate in trade against another nation. So the European Union cannot exclude Britain from their markets. And if they do, what they're going to do is stop selling us their BMWs. So all of this is a little bit of a red herring. We talk about the European Union as if it's a de facto state, and it is. And what all of these parties stand for is membership of the European Union. At the same time, they've been telling you that it's a trading body, that it's an association of nations. But from the very, very, very beginning, it was a federal state. As British cabinet papers that were released in 1956 demonstrate that the, European, the original European Coal and Steel Union was the forerunner of a European superstate. And successive governments since then, every prime minister, every senior minister, every head of a Westminster committee knew that this was a federal Europe and they never told you about it. Sorry. questions from the audience. 
So your question should be addressed to all of the MEPs if you possibly can. Just want to get the broadest range of discussion possible. So does anybody have a question they would like to ask? Yep. Um, I've recently been watching some of the European Union debates, and one thing I've noticed in particular is um, the MP for the South East, Daniel whilst giving talks, either is left in a room that's barely yet, is basically empty, or has had his microphone switched off. Um, recently, a few months ago, the Liberal Democrats said that we should be in the room for the place, but how are we meant to be in the room when we're being ignored? Okay, how are we meant to be in the room if we're being ignored? We're going to start that off with Lee, as you went last, last time. Essentially, the European Parliament has extremely limited powers to begin with. All of the rules are made by the Commission and signed off by the Council of Europe, which is ministers and heads of state. So the actual ability of the Parliament to do very much at all is, is limited in the fact that all it can do is amend legislation. It can't originate legislation. So Daniel sits there and talks amongst, uh, with very many other MEPs. And it, unless you are the head of one of the groups, you only get a minute to speak in the first place. And then you cut off and you have no one to reply. But the, the whole thing is undemocratic. You are not, we're not going to the European Union to help them make legislation. We're going to expose it and tell people what's going on. And that's what we did. So you already, you agree? Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of problems with engagement in Europe. But a, a lot of them are mirrored in, in, in similar problems with our national government. So, um, you know, the, again, in, in our national government, Ordinary backbench MEPs have very little power to bring forward legislation. You know, the, the, they can get pushed down the agenda so that things never get discussed. The, there are a lot of problems with the way that, that both parliaments operate, European and national. Um, it is very frustrating, and the Green Party wants to have si significant democratic reform at all levels to, to, to ensure that things are more responsive to people. So, yeah, it's very frustrating. Um, and as I said before, we, we want significant change of the European Union to make it what it needs to be. Yeah. Thank you. I think I heard you. I couldn't hear you quite uh, at the beginning, but uh, yeah, Dan Hannan was obviously a good colleague of mine, and we actually went into the Parliament at the same time, originally in '99, and um, you know we all have uh, good, strong views uh, in our party as well. But um, I think when you listen to people, it, it's very difficult, and I'm not being critical, but unless you've actually served in this Parliament, it really is quite difficult. When I hear comments and people say they don't do this, they don't do that. Because actually, Chris and I, we're from different parties, but we know actually what goes on. And there is what's known as co-decision, and the strength of the uh, Parliament was actually um, made stronger uh, over the last year, certainly since I went in. You're right to say, we've raised the issue of the Commission and obviously the Council, that's the Member States at the end of the day. But there is also a facility to uh, put forward what are called own initiative reports. Uh, I did one fairly recently, I specialise in aviation and aerospace and all of those things. And I had a major report last year, which was regarding um, restructuring of airspace and the introduction of uh, technology between uh, ground to air, um, you know, on air traffic management and stuff like that, because I've dealt with single European sky issues uh, for many, many years. So it's not true to say that people can't initiate anything, and now often that is taken further. Uh, but needless to say, um, you know, it's all very well sitting on the sidelines. I was an Archie Orange <coughs> skeptic before UKIP were invented. I was a founder member of the Bruges Group back in 1988 when Margaret Thatcher made her speech. Um, but I believe you have to be in there having a fight. And what we don't do in the Tory party is throw the toys out the pram. 
Uh, if I'm elected, I have a responsibility to the people in the Northwest, whatever party they may support, is to represent our interests and our businesses to the best of my ability. What happens in the future with a referendum, which is what I want, then the people will decide on that. But that is our responsibility. So, you know, it's, it's very flippant saying we'll demand and we'll demand. They can't demand anything because most of the time they don't actually turn up. <coughs> Uh, and Angeliki, do you have a response to that? Of course I do. Um, it's really important to, to participate in the debate, and uh, I don't, I don't think that. Uh, I mean, when, you know, when you are debating with twenty-eight different, uh, different member states in, uh, let's say, twenty different languages, it's very, very difficult to have to, to have a debate, and uh, there are certain timings and uh, you know that politicians go on and on especially you know euro politicians they you know why say something in one word when you can say it in 15 20 sentences but um, first and foremost you need to be in the room and uh, if you look at the uh, you know if you look at certain parties they're not even in the room never mind being ignored so you know i would start with being in the room participating um, rather than having a debate in the park and the time down the pub chattering about what's happening in the parliament Actually, you need to be there and participate and take the decisions for the people that you represent. And Chris? Well, most people here won't know Daniel Hannum. Um, I do, and uh, I've heard him speak many times, and I can understand why other people don't want to hear him speak. Um, I, do think, I, I do think the UKIP, though, has a problem when it uh, looks at the European Parliament. I don't think it can decide whether or not we are a completely powerless organisation or whether we're part of the evil empire controlling you know, all before us. Fact is that the, the Parliament, under the, under the treaties, has the power to amend or reject all legislation, pretty well equal power with, with ministers. We have the uh, ability to, to uh, reject um, international treaties and agreements made between the European Union and, and other outside bodies. And we have the power to um, pull down the Commission, and we have pulled down the Commission before now. As for the idea that you know, Britain has always been pushed around, let's take, just take a practical example. Common fisheries policy is regarded as a, you know, a bit of a disaster in European terms. We've been overfishing for years because ministers have, frankly, been listening to the fishermen when they keep saying there's plenty of fish there, they're just hiding from the scientists. Okay, so I took, I, I, two months ago I became the, the MEP of the year in the environment category for having formed a, a cross-party group, campaign group in the parliament, working, and that's how you do it, you work across the parties all the time to build the majorities necessary to overcome the resistance of some, in this case the Spanish and French, to significant CFP reform. That was matched by Britain forming alliances with Germany and the Scandinavian countries in the Council of Ministers amongst, uh, amongst the governments. And we had a pincer movement, you know, and we achieved very significant CFP reform, which puts at its very heart the rebuilding of fish stocks in, in our seas and the, the ending of this practice of, of discarding fish uh, for no particularly good reason. It is, by the way, thoroughly opposed by fishermen at the moment, but nonetheless, I think it would be good for the fish and for the fishermen in the long term. Right, so leading from that, if there was one thing that you could change about the EU as it is democratically now to try and do something about this sort of democratic deficit that we've been talking about, what change would you make if that change can't be leaving the EU? So it has to be something you can do within the EU to change it. So we'll go backwards this time. Well, if you want to overcome the so-called democratic deficit, you need to elect a president of the European Union. But I can't see any prime minister um, agreeing to that because they're not going to be overshadowed by, by, by someone who has the moral authority to, to speak on behalf of the European Union. Um, but where is this democratic deficit? You know, it consists of you know, the, the, the European Council, which is our prime ministers and the presidents and chancellors, the, very, the heads of our governments, um, 
the, uh, the European Parliament, which is elected, the Council of Ministers, which is elected, it's our ministers, and the European Commission, which is not elected, although it has to be ratified by the Parliament, but it's there to do a job for five years to implement what the, what the, what the Prime Ministers want. What's the difference between that and the American government? Who appoints John Kerry? Who, who elected John Kerry? Who elected the American Health Secretary or the Education Secretary? All of these people were appointed by the President to do a job for four years. And no one calls America uh, a democratic travesty. Okay, Angeliki, do you think there is a democratic deficit? And if so, what would you do to try to change it? I think we can always make uh, democracy work better. And uh, we can always represent the interests of the people that have voted us uh, into the European Parliament better. Where I would start was to build better relationships between the national parliaments and the European Parliament. I think that we hold into account our members of the European Parliament, uh, our members of Parliament, and they're more visible to us as citizens because they cover a smaller area. Whereas with regards to the Northwest, we have eight members of the European Parliament and we stretch from down to Crewe up in uh, Cumbria and Carlisle. So it is a very, very big demographic area and then when you split this into parties it becomes even thinner. At this moment in time the Labour Party in the European Parliament, the North West Labour Party is being represented by two people. So it is a very very big area to cover and when you think that the parliamentarian, the European parliamentarian does most of the work in Brussels because they legislate and they need to be there to vote and represent people like you and I, it, you know, visibility then and holding into account becomes more and more of an issue. So I think working with the national parliaments, involving our members of European parliaments and then working with our councils on the way down are going to put the check and balances in place, but also they're going to make the European agenda more relevant to people like you and I. Okay, what would you That's already, that already happens as, as it happens if you're looking at different uh, spheres of, uh, of government. But the issue, you, you did raise a very important point, and it was in 1999 under the Blair government that they brought in this regional system. Before that, uh, you would have known who your local councillor was. Forget the parties, you know, your local councillor, you'd know the Member of Parliament in your constituency, and the way the European Parliament worked was that an MEP covered, like it was like a donut with a little bit, then the MP, and then there were six or seven parliamentary constituencies. So they, they were for specific areas. And then they came up with this wheeze in 99 and said, let's all make it into regions. And you're absolutely spot on, because Chris and I, and um, I, I know very well, obviously, uh, Arlene McCarthy and Brian, who uh, have stood down, who are Labour MEPs. I know very well, and we get on very well, actually. And uh, we will get emails sent to all of us from the same constituent because they say I, I'm out at the moment and I'm sure Chris is and they say oh we're looking for our MEP so I say well that's me and at that time I'm up in Carlisle the next thing I'm down in Crewe and Outwich or wherever it is the other day and they say are you our MEP and I said yes I am and then I did Radio Merseyside the other day well you can tell where I'm from anyway so that's pretty close isn't it and I said yes I do I do represent Liverpool actually there is a Tory that represents Liverpool um, so there is a democratic <laughs> deficit, actually, because people don't quite know, and, and the, the system actually is just, it's a failure, that this sort of system. I don't like it, but we are where we are with it. But in terms of the EU, the issue is that we have and why we need to have reform. It's like any big organisation, and they like to build empires, and this empire has got bigger and bigger over these decades, and the Commission is all-powerful, and the trouble is the Commission very often does not listen even when people like us say, you're going down the wrong track. Because clearly they, they need to make sure that they are making sure that their jobs are very worthwhile. So what we've had is um, what's called these uh, Committee of Competences. 
I work very closely with the transport ministers because I'm the transport spokesman for the Tories and the Department for Transport and all of them. And I've worked over a year ago, started with the permanent secretaries to look at what we should do at European level, what should be done at Westminster level and what should be done at local council level. And this is the whole thrust of where we're coming from. As I said, don't throw out all the time. What should we actually be doing? And the problem we've got is, we call it the men in grey suits. Forgive me if you're wearing a grey suit, guys. They've had this vision. They haven't taken the people with them. They've gone off trying to build a great big empire. And they wonder why the whole thing looks as though it's going to implode when we look at things like the Eurozone crisis. And that's the point. They've not listened. And this is why this change and restructuring is paramount in our interests and everybody else's. So Laura, has it all gotten too large and are they just trying to grab power? What do you think about the democratic deficit right now? Well, I think, I think it's inevitable that in, in a larger um, you know, polity, you end up with having a smaller say per person. You know, uh, you know just as in America, people when they're, they're you know, voting for the whole United States will have a smaller say than when they're just voting in West Virginia or whatever. And that's a kind of inevitable feature of, of coming together and doing government on a big level. But in terms of what I would change about the EU, the really big problem is, is about the, the Commission have a lot of power relative to the Parliament. So the Parliament is the people we elect. The Commission is the people who, it's their job, they're like the civil service. Um, they have a lot of power they, and they, they don't always have to um, make information about what they're discussing public. So for instance, the, you, some of you will have heard of the TTIP deal, the, the um, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is a big trade deal between the United States and Europe, or prospective, hopefully won't go ahead, trade deal. Um, and that was, that was done completely in secret. We only know about it because the German um, Green MEP leaked some of the information, some other people have made leaks as well. So there's huge secrecy going on, and huge power. You just, there's just a simple changing of the rules there that needs to happen. Another big change that needs to happen is they listen far too much to corporations and not enough to groupings of ordinary people, so trade unions, civil society groups, and also citizens directly. I think there should be the possibility of EU referendums. So when, for instance, things like big trade deals are on the table, it should be us that are deciding that. And if it's, if it's a big thing that's going to make big changes, there should be a referendum about it. There's, that would absolutely be possible today with modern technology. Um, so it's about bringing people and, and kind of the, the ways in which we gather those groups to the European Union instead of their, the focus on, on kind of corporate voices that they have at the moment. Okay, so Lee, one thing you can change, what would it be? I'd change a great deal, but um, it's not enough. I, I don't really care about reforming the European Union. Firstly, because it can't be done. Secondly, because we, we in UK, we want to exit. But in terms of answering the question, has anybody heard of the Politburo? No, we've well, history. past history. history. The Commission is effectively the Politburo. It makes all of the decisions. <coughs> the only way that you can add any kind of legitimacy to this democratically is to abolish the Commission and then make the, either the, the Parliament, <coughs> Brussels Parliament, Supreme, or by making Council of, and make something like the Council of Ministers as a secondary chamber in some, in some way, shape, or form. Like a, it's not in our interests to sort of promote anything or to try and help them solve this. But the, the level of, it, it's almost totalitarian. But this veneer that there's, a, that there's democracy in Europe is pretty shallow. In terms of 1999, when this regionalisation thing came in, it was also part of preparing for the Lisbon Treaty or the European Constitution, which was its forerunner. And the UK was broken up into 12 regions. Scotland, Wales and Ireland, Northern Ireland, conveniently three, 
England under Lisbon doesn't exist because England legally doesn't exist. Because England is northwest, northeast, Yorkshire and Humber, West Midlands, East Midlands, East Anglia, Southwest, Southeast, and London. All the regions. And each of those regions has an assembly government in place. Now, it's administrative at the moment. We don't vote on it because of Prescott failed to get it through when he asked for the referendum in the northeast back in 2006 ish. And so this, is, this whole issue of the European Union, you have to see it in, in full panoply of what's going on. This is, this is a much bigger argument than just whether we should be in or should be out. It's about the whole structure of Europe. And to be clear, UK, the UK Independence Party is not against Europe or Europeans. It's against the European Union. That's a fundamental difference between the way it's portrayed in the media. And you need to understand that. It's the European Union that's the problem, not Europe itself. Okay, so another question from the audience, please. Does anyone have a question? So, yeah. Hi. Um, it seems appropriate to put it in now. Um, I'd like to ask about the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Agreement. Um, when I emailed Clifford with this question, he said to explain a little bit what it was. Um, so this is a trade agreement between the US and the EU uh, that will limit regulations we can set over industry and finance. It would allow corporations to sue governments and get compensation if expropriated from existing investments. It would force competition, even if it wasn't wanted. Um, and allow a, a circle of legal experts in, in a court of arbitration the power to interpret and void uh, legislation that national government makes. Uh, it also includes provision for investor state dispute settlements, which in other countries have allowed um, uh, electricity corporations to sue Germany for damages for phasing out nuclear power um, and tobacco companies to, to take Australia to court for passing anti smoking legislation. Um, so I would, I would like to ask, how do you personally and your party propose to prevent TTIP from negatively impacting on our health and education systems? Okay, so TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Agreement, a free trade agreement between the US and the EU, it hasn't actually come into force yet, but it's currently being discussed by the EU Parliament. What do each of you think on it? What would you do? Okay, so we'll go from Lee. Essentially, it's probably the worst trade agreement the world has ever considered. And Laura's right that the consequences of this are quite severe. And the lady at the top there has just outlined a great many of them. People complain about privatisation of the NHS. But when this legislation is passed, you can kiss goodbye to the NHS. It's basically going to get given out. All of the what you see now with PFI contracts and the like, you may go from puff, but this is true. This is going to happen. The, those three parties at the end, they're, they're vastly in favour of it. And it's going to be a disaster, for, not just for Europe, but for the UK. Because there's going to be no way that the UK government can contest any of these decisions or change any law going forward. Because the UK law is subservient to EU law. And this is a trade deal between the US and the EU. So the UK is going to be in big trouble. Okay, to make sure we've got a little bit of debate going in that case, we're going to go to Chris next for his response. I hugely welcome the idea of us having a, a trade area with the United States across the, across the Atlantic that can create an estimated £120 billion worth of uh, extra investment and extra, extra trade and tens of thousands, perhaps uh, hundreds of thousands of extra jobs. Europe needs extra jobs, okay? Trade promotes jobs. 
and, uh, and we will have the opportunity to, to gain access to American markets, which we don't have at the moment. So in principle, I'm in favour of it. And despite the briefing, which is very negative, you know, where are we up to at the moment? That's, that's, that's a possibility. That's a possibility, and it's also a possibility that cows can jump over the moon or something. But at the moment, that is not where we are. Negotiations are taking place between uh, EU negotiators, all divided up into looking at you know, the agricultural sector and, and um, um, I don't know, um, environmental regulations and the like, at a whole, with, with Americans at a whole range of levels. It's not in the Parliament yet, because you know, although the Parliament is questioning, you know, the Commission has come to us and we put questions about where, where we're up to in these negotiations, are you taking into, into account the fact that we have very real concerns about some of the issues you did raise? Um, and uh, I can report back that the, uh, the chief negotiator, the chief negotiator for these negotiations, had, came to us just two months ago and said, "Look, I got the message. Okay, I understand these concerns, and you're not the only one because I have these concerns myself." He said, "I am not going to uh, allow um, European. I'm not going to. I'm not going to open up the European economy to be devastated and our standards to be destroyed because we were seeking to promote trade at all costs." I recognise, for example, let's take a very simple example. Uh, in agriculture, the Americans put growth hormones into their meat. We do not allow growth hormones to be put into their meat. He, he says it is off the agenda, okay? And similarly, this, the, the big concern about um, the investor, the, the idea that corporations could sue governments if they're not allowed access to, 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 uh, to, to opportunities. You know, controls are going to be put in place on there. But ultimately, you know, a, some sort of agreement is, is going to be hammered out in draft form. It then has to be put to the governments of Europe, to the, the European Council. It has to be put to the European Parliament. Both of us have, both of us have a chance to, to reject it. It also has to be put to Congress. And Congress in the United States is a very protectionist body. And I don't see Congress being hugely keen to opening it up its markets to European companies to take away American jobs. So I think we're a very long way off, uh, off uh, getting an agreement which is going to have anything like the awful consequences that some people predict. On the contrary, I think we're going to get a compromised agreement which will go some way towards boosting trade and, and job opportunities. So but, we'll it not, we'll, but we're not... And it's not in secret. It, well, the, trade, the, actual, the, actual one, the actual one-to-one negotiations, of course, are taking place in secret. I mean, they, you know, all, all discussions of that kind do. UKIP meetings take place in secret. Um, you know, all party meetings do. Oh, yeah. Just ask Nigel that, you know. Um, and, um, but, but, but ultimately, the, the, the negotiators have to come to the Parliament and, have to, have, and do make continual statements um, in public about where they're up to in the negotiations. Okay, so let's go to Laura next. Okay, so um, the, the question was how, how do you propose to prevent TTIP from impacting on our health and education systems? Well, primarily by by trying to prevent the deal from going through in the first place. Um, you know, we're campaigning very hard on that. Um, and, uh, and then secondly, by tabling amendments to the TTIP deal to try and make it less poisonous. So a, a core one is, is trying to get rid of this investor state dispute thing. So what that actually means is that, is that a company can take a government to court. Um, in, and, and it's not like in a, in a national court, it's, in a, it's a private, a, a private for-profit court. There's a lot of problems with kind of conflicts of interest with the lawyers promoting it and so on. Um, and it's... So that, that mechanism means, for instance, if, if we um, nationalised one of our railway lines, say when the contract came up and we, we chose to nationalise it rather than, um, rather than renew the contract with that company, that company could sue the British government, sue us as taxpayers, um, for, for, for the profits that they hoped they were going to make on that railway line. 
in the future. So uh, that you know that's clearly bonkers, and it, and it clearly needs taking out of any kind of deal. It's actually a feature that we already have in trade deals with a lot of countries, um, and uh, it, it's been around for a long time. So we we will be tabling amendments against that. The, the green uh, the green group is actually the fourth biggest group in the European Parliament, and they they have more power than you might think. So sometimes these amendments do get through successfully. We just need more green MEPs in order to be able to fight that. Okay, Angeliki, what are your thoughts okay. on? So we will be negotiating this through our socialist uh, family in the European Union and what we're going to do is to make sure that our employment rights, the social rights, the environmental standards are going to achieve us a balanced deal. We are going to be looking at the deal and when you start a deal, you know, you don't start from the bottom line and this is the text that the Americans came to us with and of course there will be negotiations and there will be towing and throwing but we need to do this in a European Union when we are seen as a credible partner because now we are seen as we're heading towards the exit. So what is my role and the role of the uh, members of the European Parliament from the Labour Party is to build up links and relationships with, which have currently been broken by the Conservative governments and by UKIP. Okay, so Jacqueline, how can we manage to get this trade treaty in the best way possible well, if they are breaking those links. Before that, all of you lose the will to live, we've had about 5,000 million spammed emails on this. And just to be absolutely frank, what has been already said by Chris is where we are. This has got a long way to go. This isn't anywhere, and it's probably not going anywhere. Because unless they get agreements from the member states onto what we should do, uh, ultimately with a, with, a, with a sort of trade deal with, with the US, it won't be going anywhere. I deal with issues on air service agreements because uh, before the EU it used to have countries which would have what were called bilateral air service agreements and it could be the UK with the US or it could be the UK with France or whatever it is and that's evolved over the time because you've got this big trading block and both sides sit down, they all have a look and then they see where they're all going. Now they're already looking at, there's already agreements with EU India, EU China, you know, that you're looking at all of these sorts of, because this is where they want to do <coughs> these things. Ultimately, what you want to do is reduce tariffs because we are major exporters. If you look at the UK, never mind the rest of Europe, we're not too bothered about them. But it's very important when we're trading that we've got a pretty well good level playing field. But the, the points you're raising that have all been whipped up in this frenzy, and it's all over the emails I'm getting, I'm sure, sure Chris is as well, and we're going to be having them involved in the railway. It's absolute drivel. All it's doing is winding up a load of people thinking, oh my God, what? It's not even going to be touching anything like that. So it's a lot of rubbish so far. And all that I would say is there are a load of other things that I think would take much more priority if people want to get involved or interested in them, uh, aside from that. I have a colleague who's our spokesman on overseas trade, Robert Sturdy. Everybody's involved. Everybody's looking at these things. But nothing will be going anywhere for a very, very long time, you mark my words. And as Chris said, Congress, I mean, the states, the American Congress, they're so protectionist in any event. I mean, there's got to be a quid pro quo. So I'd just honestly relax. Go and have a drink after this in the pub and enjoy your, and enjoy your drink, because it's not going anywhere. Okay, right. Great. Can we have, have another question from me. the audience, please? Yeah. Um, is it now time for the EU to give up on the common agricultural policy and actually help the third world? Can you give a little description to people who may not know what the Common Agricultural Policy is? No, I can't. No. Um, so, Common Agriculture, as far as I understand it, people will be free to correct me, is a sort of protectionist policy for European member states 
um, which allows them to, I think, trade freely uh, with their agriculture, but essentially just leaves out um, countries in the third world who actually have agricultural economies and rely on them and sort of leaves out these countries and prevents them from accessing our market. Okay, so lots of well-paid European farmers, but less so for people outside of the EU. So we're going to go this way to start with. Me again. Okay. Oh, no, it's Mason. No, I wasn't first, was I? Okay, um, common agricultural policy. Um, always, I've always grumbled and groaned about the common agricultural policy. Uh, it's, it, it used to be the, the key element of, of, of the European Union funding, uh, of expenditure used up about 80% of the, of the total EU budget. By 2020, that would be down to about 35%. Um, as for the developing nations, I know the argument, but do remember that the EU is the biggest single, um, biggest single importer of goods from developing nations, from agri from agri of agricultural products from developing nations, and we have completely free trade with all, because more than 100, of the very poorest nations in the world. And we do a lot more than the states. Our difficulties with the CAP, uh, uh, I mean, first of all, I, I would argue that we don't need subsidies. National Farmers Union said we must have subsidies, but uh, I, I would argue not. Um, I would suggest to you that although you say we should get rid of it altogether, you would probably suggest that we do actually need some sort of subsidies for upland farmers, for example, you know, whether it be in, in the Lake District or whether it be in you know, Austria, because there isn't going to be any agriculture. It's not commercially viable without some sort of subsidy. They're basically landscape ma maintainers, aren't they? You know, they, can't, uh, they, they can't exist without, without subsidy. Um, to me, to me the, the, the issue is, can we... Can, 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 we, we have to work, unfortunately, at the lowest common denominator. And we get outvoted on the, these issues. But if we don't, if, if, if we were to pull out, as no doubt Lee will argue, of the EU altogether, and we weren't to subsidise our agriculture, and the French were, and all our competitors across the channel were, and the Americans were to continue to do so, then we put all our agriculture at risk. So we're stuck, up to, to, to my mind, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vicious circle of subsidies because everyone's doing it and, and it's difficult to, to, to break it and stop everyone doing it. Okay, so Lee, what is the answer to the common agricultural policy? Common agricultural policy has been a disaster across Europe. The, the issue of commercial viability for upland farming isn't to do with the way farming takes place. It's to do with the power of the buying infrastructure, Tesco's, Astor's, etc. They dictate pricing, as they do across agriculture, in terms of the products that you see. We have to open up the market properly to competition. That will, Some prices will rise, some prices will fall. But the co common agricultural policy in itself, I believe, adds about £400 a year to your average food bill. Now, I, those are figures that I've been given. I don't know whether they're true or not, but that's what people reckon. <laughs> now, if the UK left the European Union, would we have to subsidise? We probably would. But you could, we could subsidise it in a manner that's in the interests of the UK economy and UK food producers, not in some blanket, one-size-fits-all manner which the CAP does. Okay, and Jacqueline, common agriculture policy? Well, it was set up for the French, just so you know. Um, the French love their farmers. I love the British farmers, actually. And to be fair to the French, because they can be very dogmatic, as you know, at the drop of a hat, those farmers are blocking the motorways and people are going on their holidays and they don't care. Um, but they have been the major recipients of the subsidies that have certainly uh, gone from the European Union. It was, the, it was the common market then. I remember many, many years ago, your parents will remember, and we had all of these wine lakes and butter mountains, and it was actually quite obscene, quite frankly. So over the years, of course, you've then got new countries have joined, and you've got for you know, Eastern Europe, Eastern Bloc, uh, Poland, huge agricultural 
uh, community. So you've got a lot of the newer countries, and of course they wanted to be part of the common, common agricultural policy. And the thing is, you're between a bit of a rock and a hard place, because the point you did raise was about third countries. Uh, if you're looking at the Commonwealth countries, for example, we still have a big Commonwealth, and we still have parts of the world that are producing sugarcane and all of these sorts of things, bananas, fair trade. A lot of you all know about fair trade. And it's trying to make sure that they've got a bite of the cherry, quite rightly too. Um, because we have to, we do have historical links uh, with a lot of these countries. So I think that's improved, quite honestly. And there was fairly recently, only a few months ago, some revisions on CAP. Um, I don't know what the answer is, because the thing is you couldn't just stop it just like that. Um, because we didn't have subsidies before 30-odd uh, years ago. We, we didn't have them. Uh, because it is a market, it was a market. But whatever you do, you've got to do it really quite gradually. Because the last thing I want, we've got the most, farmer, the most efficient farmers in Europe are actually British in terms of what they will do with the land and the, the, the productivity and obviously with the animal, uh, fantastic animal husbandry and all of those sorts of things. So I'm there for the Brit. We need to support the British farmers. That's what we need to be doing every time we go into a shop. And I'm sick of seeing them completely screwed sometimes by the supermarkets when you're looking at uh, you know, the cost of a pint of milk. Uh, one of my colleagues on our list is a dairy farm. He has 300 dairy cattle up in, in, in Cumbria. And half of these farmers, you know, they're working 24-7, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to stick the milk on your cornflakes in the most diabolical conditions. And, uh, you know, uh, the bottom line is we've got to support them. So we're fighting in there, and we have had some improvements for British farmers, um, but it's certainly not straightforward, and we can't do anything that would actually damage where they are at the moment. But we have dealt a bit with the set-aside and various other things. It's a hugely complex area, this. And um, my farming colleague, who is on our list, uh, Kevin, I'm sure he'd be happy to come and talk to you about it if there's somebody really interested with all the detail. He's an FU as well, at uh, the National Farmers Union. So I think that's where they are. There's no easy answer. Right, and Fihi, do okay. you agree? So all industrialised countries are subsidising their agriculture. The question is, uh, you know, if we are outside the European Union, that doesn't mean that we are not going to do it. Um, we have a system that serves 28 countries, and obviously some countries win and some countries lose. Now, like uh, Chris said, we have managed to bring down the subsidies, negotiation over negotiation, and we need to go even further. But, you know, there needs to be a tapering. You cannot just cut the subsidies off, uh, off farmers. And it's the same rule that applies both to French farmers and also to, you know, to British farmers. So we need to find a sensible way to reduce this, but also we need to find a sensible way to make sure that we have fresh food, fresh nutritious foods on our tables. We need to have a look to see how we can green our industry and um, to see how we can use inner cities in order to start growing food. And we have some very, very good examples up here in the northwest and in particular in Salford. I've been working with a project that is looking at vertical farms. And we need to divert some money into looking at how we tackle this challenge because, you know, never, we need to remind ourselves why the common agricultural policy um, was put together. And this is to ensure that after the World War, that after the wars that we had, there was a table in every, uh, there was food in every single table across Europe. And this is what it served. Now we've moved on and we need to look at different ways in order to do this. And Laura, thoughts on the common agriculture policy? Yeah, yeah, it is quite complicated. And I actually, a while back, sat down and, and worked out a, a kind of full alternative to the common agricultural policy to try and address these problems that you're talking about. Because yeah, you're kind of stuck on the one hand. You know, do you, if, if we do get rid of the subsidies, we, 
you know, at the end of the day, food is expensive <coughs> to produce, it's labour intensive, but, you know, as has been mentioned, it, it, it takes an awful lot of work to put the food on our tables, and we have to decide how we want to pay for that, and we can either pay for it in prices, um, or we can pay for it through tax, which then goes to subsidies, and, and so, you know, if we were just just remove those subsidies without allowing, you know, without expecting huge price rises, then farmers would go out of business and they wouldn't be able to produce food, and I think it is very important that we you know, that we produce food it, it, it's, it's the, one of the fundamental things that we all need. On the other hand, of course, it, it does make it extremely difficult for farmers in the developing world to make a living. Um, and so, you know, I, I have got a whole alternative plan, which I wish there was time to explain. Um, but the, the, um, That's the uh, Yeah, I can have a go. In short, basically, what we should be doing is, is, is scrapping the cap and inventing a new system of subsidies that doesn't work just for Europe, but works for the whole world. Because producing food sustainably is an important social um, service that, that farmers provide and farmers worldwide should be subsidised when they have produced food sustainably according to how sustainably they have done it. So that would mean subsidising according to so farmers in developing countries for instance often use less machinery and less pesticide and so on so that makes them more sustainable but then there's big food masks so that's you know, that's it. and so it will kind of balance out. So in short, yes there's a lot we need to do about cat um, but it's not an easy <laughs> can we have another question? Ooh, okay. Can we just play with that a bit? I mean, yeah. Can I just say, just, it's been such a fantastic... You can add in to your next response. Okay, right. Right. <laughs> right, okay, so we'll have... Yeah. We've heard a lot about uh, how, the, uh, how leaving the EU would affect Britain, uh, both positively and negatively, but clearly uh, Britain isn't the only... Uh, country that's going to be affected by that, which I haven't actually heard anything about from any of the parties involved. So, how, how do you think that's going to affect the rest of Europe? And do you care? As well? um, <laughs> we'll start with you here. What's the effect on the other countries when we leave the EU, and do we care or not? Euroscepticism across Europe it, it is in all 20, 28 member nations, and it's growing in all 28 member nations. If UK were the first to leave, all it would do would stimulate others to do the same thing. Because none of, these, none of these people, none of these parties are against Europe or Europeans. It's about the European Union. The European Union is the problem. So if the UK were to exit, all it would do would stimulate, give confidence to others to do the same. And I think it would be a hugely positive thing for the continent. All right. Um, yeah, we don't hear a lot about that, do we? Um, and I think it's interesting, a lot of the arguments about us leaving the EU are about how much it costs us and so on. And what we mean by that is it, we're, we're very much one of the richer countries of Europe, especially since we've had some of Eastern Europe join. And so, yeah, we do put more money into the EU than we get back. And yes, that, some of that money is, is distributed in countries that are poorer than us. I, I actually, I, I, I think that's a good thing. I'm in favour of global redistribution. I think that Britain has, you know, is, is a rich country because it's, it's made use of the resources and labour of the world in canny ways for a very long time, partly through empire and so on. And yeah, I think, I think we need to be redistributing some wealth to other countries. And, and so it's not a concern for me at all that the, the EU, EU has these redistributive um, faculties. And I think if, if Britain left, then it would be able to do that less well. Um, in terms of whether they would care or not, I, I watched a, a YouTube video asking Germans whether they would care, and they were like, no. Um, <laughs> so I, I think they probably wouldn't express a huge um, amount of feeling about it, but I think at the end of the day, I, I, care about, I care about the citizens of Europe as much as I care about the citizens of Britain. We're all people. No one chooses which side of the line they're born on. And, you know, this is another reason why I don't really want to leave the EU, because if you're not at that table helping to make those decisions, you, you know, our democratic voice can't be helping to support 
the democratic voice of other people in Europe and stand up for the things that are right on behalf of all of us and the interests of all of us. Because really, you know, ordinary people, the 99%, we share more in common with the 99%, the ordinary people in Lithuania and in Italy and everywhere else, than we do with the people that lead us in any of those countries. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I want, I want to keep that kind of bringing together and keep that focus on us as, as citizens of the world. Right, so Jacqueline, do you agree that it's important we are there for that sort of redistribution and what do you think will happen if we were to leave? I've not thought about redistribution, but have any of you seen recently there were a couple of programmes on um, the East India Company? Yes. It was on telly, on BBC Two. Some of you read in history, aren't you? I'm sure. No? Yeah? Uh, well, the East India Company is one of the most famous and wealthy companies, made Britain very wealthy. And we're going back now 400 years. Uh, what we did realise in this little country of ours, we're only 0.2% of the world landmass, and this is going back 500 years, that either we trade or we, wouldn't, we'd, we would die. And this is why as an island nation, and obviously with people who want sailing off into the distance, uh, this is how we started to trade. Um, and we ended up eventually, we had an empire, and we had all of those relationships with all of those countries, I think a third of the world, a third of the world. And um, time moves on, but historically we still are traders. And the whole point of the European Union, which I don't have an issue with, is being part of a trading bloc, because that's what we are. Um, if you can make the rules fairly simple, if you can, I think, drop off a tariff, we used to pay all sorts of tariffs and things uh, at one stage, which was hard for our companies who were exporting or when we were importing goods and make them very expensive. So there's all sorts of things I think you can do. Um, but the question then is, what do the others think if, if we decide to leave? What's the impact on our businesses? Well, first of all, uh, all of my colleagues, and I work with obviously all of those different nationalities in the parliament over the years, they don't want us to leave. Uh, German colleagues, French colleagues, got colleagues, a lot of colleagues in my group from Poland and Latvia and and they really don't want us to leave. One of the big problems, I think, that caused um, some of the unease uh, was the fact that 10 countries joined in 2004. <coughs> and most of those countries were really not that economically strong, because they weren't. They were former Eastern Bloc countries, and clearly they had economies that were pretty well like basket cases. In 2007, both Romania and Bulgaria joined, and again, they weren't solid sound they were coming out of very difficult times like those others. So financially, we tried to support them and direct funds and start to bring them up too. So the fact of the matter is, if we left, what would happen? Um, I believe if you, you make a product and you build a product, I deal with the aerospace and defense sector and the car industry and all of that, um, I think we can stand on our own two feet because we export anyway. And as I said, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. The rest of the world, to me, is as, is as important as trading partners as the European Union. Certainly, and it's got to, it's got to be like that. But the, the, the fundamental point is, and I'll conclude, um, is that um, ideally, I mean, we build, we have now, obviously, um, companies that the cross borders. We have, say, the Airbus Group, and there's part of it in Germany, part of it in France. We build all the wings on the Chester border. We build the best wings in the world, actually. Uh, the car industry is doing hugely, hugely well. And uh, the bottom line is, yes, we will still continue to trade. But ultimately, because this argument now has gone on for so long, this is why we in the Conservative Party have said, we can't carry on having this argument. 
We need to get to a point where the British people have a say and we can decide what we're going to do. Because it can't carry on these structures the way they're carrying on. And so we need to put this to bed. And the best way to do it, quite frankly, is to have a referendum. And we're the only ones that actually can deliver it. We'll do it in 2015. Right, sorry, can you... We were to leave you. And just, just picking up where, where you left from, I think it's tragic that our government is thinking that, you know, we can't influence Europe and for this reason we really need a referendum. You are in government, you can influence Europe. However, you get Angela Merkel to come here and tell our Prime Minister what she wants to do or not in Europe. I find that personally very offensive. I think that we should be leading in Europe rather than waiting for Germany to come and tell us if we can have this or if we cannot have that. And it's your government that has put us into this uh, place. However, I would like, I don't know what others are thinking um, about us living and I would like to think that they will think that they, it's a tragic loss because our place in the world, and I mean our 28 members of the European Union place in the world, will be a weaker place without Britain. Because Britain has a lot to teach other European member states, and I think other European member states, newer European member states, have a lot to learn from uh, Britain. Um, I am very, very proud to be British, and I'm very proud working in transnational projects, European funding, because this is what I do in my day job, teaching other member states what they can do and what they can learn from the European Union and how can they manage their programs. And this is because as an older member state, we've been through that, so we have the systems in place so that we can teach them. I would really like to think that they will, we will be a tragic loss rather than see you later. And if you think that you can change and influence the American trade um, agreements outside the EU, good luck. Of course you can. Democracy. Democracy. So, I don't People, think sorry, sorry, it's a trade agreement between Europe <laughs> and America, not Britain. Well, Britain could strike its own trade agreement. Right. Let's let's let Chris come in here. Well, let's, and do, give us let's, let's not wait until until Britain has hypothetically left the European Union. Let's uh, let's think about the next few days. Um, it is expected, according to the polls, that UKIP will do very well in these elections this week, and indeed may emerge as the largest party. Now, I've been—I don't know if you've been listening to this too—but I've been listening to Alex Salmon over the past few weeks, even today, uh, and he's been using the same arguments about Scotland repeatedly. He's saying, we are a you know, proud nation, we are committed to the European Union, we don't have a problem with that, we actually think uh, um, within the European Union we have more say over our day-to-day -day affairs than we would have as part of the United Kingdom. Uh, we, uh, we, UKIP will not win a seat in Scotland, he says. He's, he's, he's made his, I know Lee will may disagree, but he's, he's very determined, he says. UKIP will not win a seat here. SNP will emerge as the largest party. Scotland will be seen as young, and open and forward-looking against a Britain with UKIP now topping the polls, which is easily, easily portrayed by the Scots as insular and old and backward-looking and bigoted. Now, the question, is, the question is, if he is able to exploit the results of the election in that way, will we end up in just uh, four months' time in we September? The we, no, not with breaking up the European Union, but with breaking up the United Kingdom. Okay, so we've got time for one last question. So, yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about trade, um, and I think it's, it's good to spend like 
loads of time to talk about trade. Um, but it's also um, important to look at the other aspects of the European Union. Um, so, for example, free movement um, that we get, we can go over to Spain if we want, um, and Spanish can come here if they want. Um, and things like the Human Rights Act that protect lots of the citizens in this country and citizens elsewhere. Um, I'd like to know a bit about um, what your party thinks about, one, the Human Rights Act, um, and two, um, the free movement of people in Europe. Okay, so we will go backwards again. So Chris, and then we'll conclude with Lee at the end. To me. Um, uh, Human Rights Act, well, it's a, it was passed by the last government. Of course, it puts the European Convention into British law. The European Convention is not part of the European Union, although all EU member states have signed up to it. Huh. You know, can, can we, yes, yes, indeed, you, it, it's expected. But it, is not actually, it was actually drawn up by, by British lawyers post the Second World War. Um, it is not formally part of the European Union. Um, I defend the Human Rights Act. I'm more than happy with it. Uh, as, for, um, as for the issue of free movement, well, free movement as it applies to people want to, I'm, I'm delighted that hundreds of thousands of people from Britain are able to go and work elsewhere in Europe um, and take advantage of that. I'm also, I also think that the, the fact that we've been able to attract just you know, large numbers of some of the most talented people from across Europe, young and entrepreneurial and just you know, wanting to get up and go to this country, is one of the reasons why you know, we are successful and why the economic recovery is taking place. I think, um, uh, I, I think if I have any concern at all, it is already too successful, and that too often we've sucked some of the best talent, best, best young people and, and, and most skilled people out of some of the Eastern European countries where they are sorely needed. Okay, Angeliki, what's your opinion on this? Um, I, I'm 100% behind the, the uh, Human Rights Act and uh, obviously, uh, you know, the free movement of people. It's due to the free movement of people that, uh, you know, I left my home in Greece and uh, I came here to study, uh, much like you, um, and I benefit from that every single day. Um, I think another very, very important thing that the European Union is safeguarding on us and uh, some of these parties and some of the colleagues that are sat on this panel today are going to take away if you vote for them, and this is the employment rights. We are taking for granted the employment rights that are guaranteed on the European Union level. So my brother works in China. He's got two weeks um, paid leave that he can take on holiday, and if he gets sick, he's losing of his paid leave. Um, if you think that paternity rights, ma maternity rights and other rights, the rights of TUPI that is guaranteed by the European Union is not going to go, when you vote for dangerous parties, then um, please think about other countries and why the European Union has been able to attract over the years intelligent young people that are willing to come and work and leave their countries and come here to benefit from the basic freedoms and employment rights that are safeguarded and guaranteed. And as a Labour Party candidate, I'm going to stand up for these rights and defend it. Okay, and Jacqueline? Well, fortunately, Britain didn't uh, join the Eurozone and we kept the pound. Um, otherwise, we'd have probably been in the same mess as uh, Greece and some of the other countries, with levels of unemployment, which are absolutely catastrophic. But with regards to, um, if you're looking at trade, if you're looking at employment law, um, I'm former de Deputy General Secretary of a trade union uh, in my former life. You may find that odd as a Tory. Former Transport and General Workers Union shop steward. And I did, uh, I used to negotiate the terms and conditions for British Airways crew and introduced all the flexible working contracts. But my view is this, it is not for Europe. There is no necessity for Europe to negotiate every nook and cranny of employment law. This is why we elect members of parliament who are accountable to us, and that's extremely important. This is why we have collective bargaining. This is why we have all of these laws. 
what was absolutely obvious in terms of uh, employment law that was a concern when that social charter came in was actually junior doctors in the National Health Service who had worked under a scheme where they accrued the hours obviously for their promotion and their experience and they found that they were then limited because clearly they're going to work very odd hours because you know a lot of businesses and industries and organisations don't work nine to five for obvious reasons and there's been quite difficult uh, situations with regards to that. So my view is we elect members of parliament, we have the Palace of Westminster, we have a proper democratic system and that's where most of the employment law, actually all of the employment law should be left and that is what we're, we're looking at bringing back. So we take control because the economies are all different uh, and that's, that, that is actually correct. In terms of human rights, uh, I fundamentally disagreed with the uh, European Convention on Human Rights being brought into UK law. We are signatories post-World War II because of the Holocaust to the European Court of Human Rights, which as you all know is not one of the, um, one of the um, institutions of the EU. The European Court of Justice is, but the European Court, and that changes nothing. We are accountable to all of that, and the problem is with the European Convention on Human Rights, the abuse under Article 8 that's taken place, meant that people who are in the news today, like Abu Hamza, who wishes no, no good fortune on anybody living in this country, who is a terrorist, along with many of his cohorts, we <coughs> in this country, and the security services, and the governments, not just our government, the governments we <coughs> are under constant pressure to make sure that you and I, and we can all sit and go like that, that we're safe to walk in the streets and walk around Manchester, and everywhere else that we want to go. So um, I think we have to be very thoughtful when we're looking at human rights law, because of course we support it, but it has to be, it has to be done in such a fashion that actually it's protecting all of us too. With rights come responsibilities, and that is the name of the game with that. So, you know, so there are some of these key issues, and I'm glad you raised those two points, because these are issues that we are looking at, having to have a look at, to see what we're doing here across Europe, because this is really not working. These countries are all very different. We've all grown up very differently. Nobody's wrong and nobody's right. Nobody's criticizing one country to another. But when you get different countries and different cultures, it doesn't mean to say you can't do many things together. It was Margaret Thatcher's government in 1986 that signed the act which was the free movement of people and goods. 1986, it was our government. I have no issue with the free movement of people and goods. But what we have to do is make sure that people on the free movement that the, the whole thing is done properly, that there are proper rules and regulations in place, and that's the whole point of that. So that's why we're having to look uh, at all of that as well. So, um, as I said, all in all, I think there's everything to play for, and if you want to say, I'll get back to finalising this now, if you want to say in the way this uh, country should go in the future, then you have to vote for the Conservative Party and you have to give us a majority government next year and then you too can have a say about what we should be doing in 2017 and what this country should do with regards to our relationship with the European Union. Yeah, so Laura, thoughts on free trade movements? The free movement of people is obviously a fantastic feature of um, the European Union. It's a kind of experiment in a, in a no-borders in a no borders world, which I think, you know, I, I suspect a lot of people would, would like to think that one day in the world people wouldn't be you know, hemmed in and forced to stay in a place where they can't make a living or, um, or, or can't live like that. And I think Europe is a brilliant experiment in that. And we all, I'm sure, have benefited from travelling around Europe and making use of that. Um, in terms of human rights, 
yeah, this is this is the sort of area where I think where where a kind of international response is really important because you say that it's it's something that we can you know in employment rights that we can do do on a national level and yeah we can but I, I think there are some basic minimums that you know that are, are core features of humanity. I don't think people should be tortured to produce false confessions for, for for political crimes anywhere in the world and I think that's something that. I'm confident I could say I, I can say that's right for all of humanity, and I'm, I'm kind of confident enough <coughs> about that that I think we should have pan-world pan legislation about that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, sometimes it means that with you know kind of cartoon villains like Abu Hamza, we can't you know unfortunately you know deport them or, or you know, these these sorts of things. But there, those are kind of tiny cases, and we, what we don't see is the huge amount of protection that we all get from European human rights law and the European um, Court of Human Rights. So, for instance. The right to protest. Um, this is something that national governments often don't do an awful lot to protect because it, it tends to work against them. People tend to protest against the government. So having a kind of a level above that to which you can appeal is, is very important, and it's often to the European Court of Human Rights that, that, that people use to, to manage to, to secure their right to protest and to, and to bat away, um, you know, kind of inappropriate charges laid for that sort of thing. Um, in terms of other things that the European Union can, you know, can do. Cross-border standards for things like for minimum labour standards. I would support a European minimum wage, for instance. You know, not that, not that we would only have that, but that would be a kind of floor below which wages cannot fall. Because, you know, these, these are things to do with basic human decency. No one anywhere should be paid an exploitatively low wage. And it also helps with things like stopping jobs from shifting from one country to another because countries are continually forced to lower their standards. You see this on corporate tax as well. So this is something the Green Group in the European Parliament have been working on trying to get a minimum corporate tax rate across Europe. Because at the moment, European countries are competing to go, oh, come, come and invest here and we'll give you even lower tax than France. Or, you know, and the, the Conservatives and, and the Lib Dems in government, in our national government, have lowered our corporate tax rate. So, good. yeah, so, so the profits, the one, the one kind of, um, you know, we, that means that all of, our, all of us need to pay more tax because profits are being taxed less. Profit is spare money. Um, effectively, that companies make. So it, it's, it's those kind of rules that, that it's useful. You can prevent a race to the bottom. <laughs> you can prevent a race to the bottom by having rules like that to protect all of us between countries. So yes, I think those are very important features of the European Union, and they're the kinds of things that we would be seeking to increase and make a bigger role for the European Union in protecting us in those kind of minimum standard ways. Okay, so Lee, we've talked about some of the benefits that some people feel we have from EU membership. Do you think these things are benefits and are there anything you want to do if we were to leave the EU? Precious few I would imagine. Firstly, Britain has probably the best record in, in history in terms of human rights at the individual level and institutional level. The European Convention on Human Rights is responsible, is at the root of most of the problems that we have, particularly in deporting people like Abu Hamza and the like. However, with the European arrest warrant, any of you could be accused of anything, shipped off around Europe and held for months and months without charge. So we can, we can effectively deport you around Europe, but we can't deport Abu Hamza and people like him. There is a recent story of a mafia boss, I believe it's been resolved now, that we couldn't extradite him back to Italy because of the human rights. So the human rights, in, essence, in an ideal world, it'd be fabulous. In the reality of law, it's, it's a catastrophe again. With regard to the free, free, free movement of people, 
The mass movement of people, which is what we're talking about, from southern and eastern Europe to the UK in particular, but to all the northern European countries, has put pressure on wages, it's created pressure on jobs. You combine that with a minimum wage, and what you're doing, you're not putting a, a floor on earnings, you're putting a ceiling on earnings. This is real economics. Because what you get now, the differential between the minimum wage, which everybody is, that's, the, that's what you're offered, the differential now between that and skilled wages is closing. Now, I know what that means is that the ability to earn a wage without having to rely on benefits like working tax credits, you guys won't be into all of this yet, but talk to your parents. See what their earnings have done over the last 10 years. See what their levels of income are, are, are with this free movement of people. There are other ways As to boost wages. There, there, are, there are much better ways to boost wages. Firstly, you let the economies float, and secondly, you remove the minimum wage affecting everybody, and you start to target bad employers like we used to do in the past. There'll always be bad employers, there'll always be exploitative employers. The task is that the establishment, the state, should deal with those. Not a blanket, one-size-fits-all minimum wage that just drags everybody into poverty, which is, gonna, which is what's happening. You then look at employment rights, and it's fabulous that everybody's had maternity leave and paternity leave and pensions. But the reality is somebody's got to pay for that. Firms have got to pay for that out of their profits. Now, that means that if you, the more benefits that people have without some kind of balance, the more you're going to get in terms of reduction in jobs, availability of jobs, because it costs too much to employ people. National companies, uh, employers' national insurance is a good example of that. It's too high. Now, that does not mean you remove people's rights. It means you have to think things through before you make decisions. We now have zero-hours contracts that nobody's mentioned on the panel. They've been in for years. Yeah, they have. But None they of these outlawed. things are European. It's very nice. The point is that these, the way the economy is going in the European Union, and if it's not to do with the European, then why haven't they stopped it or outlawed it? It's the modern equivalent. Well, no, it's national government. Sorry, guys. It's, to, but it's national it's government. The it's the European debate. Standing on the street corner, waiting for somebody to give you a day's work, which we outlawed. Right. Okay. One I last thing. You. One last thing. With regards to the, the debt, somebody mentioned in the euro or not. The official debt of this country is 1.7 trillion. The fiscal deficit is still 126 billion pounds a year. The real debt is 7.7 .7 trillion pounds a year if you include all of the off-book debt, all of the pension contributions, all of the PFI contracts. That 7.7 .7 trillion, which is the Taxpayers Alliance's number, not mine, is equivalent to 550% of GDP. Greece collapsed at 170% of GDP. If we carry on the way we're going, we're going to end up the same place. The UK has got to exit, it's got to start making decisions and governing itself for our interests and not anybody else's. Okay, so I'd like to thank everyone for their questions. We're now going to allow each of the candidates to give a really quick final statement on their position if they want to like, clean up any loose ends they think are left after that discussion. So we'll go from the opposite end, so we'll start again with Chris. So well, a short statement. Okay, well, I think everyone will get gathered. My, my view is that almost everything that Lee has just said is entirely responsible of the UK government, and it is not a European Union uh, function whatsoever. So we can do all the things that Lee wants if we would choose to do so. Strip away the, the flim-flam, and the European Union is simply a mechanism that allows governments to work together because they recognise they have some common problems and they need to find some shared solutions. It is not an evil empire. Um, it is a 28 countries, different views, different perspectives, loads and loads of different political opinions, conflict and, uh, and compromise all the time. And those are the, the issues, some of the issues before us that we need to be dealing with and have been dealing with. 
things, issues like banking reform, so we don't get to the same economic crisis we've just had. All sorts of uh, environmental measures um, necessary. Of course, trade agreements and issues like the, the one which is very much in the headlines at the moment. How do we put, how do we uh, ensure that data is free-flowing between uh, countries, access is, is available to all, and yet at the same time we're protecting individual privacy, the great Google issue that's, that's been coming up. These are the issues that really should be on the agenda, but across the northwest of England, across the country, you just don't find them being properly debated. And Okay. I had on my list making it easier for employers to fire staff at will, scrapping the legal right to sick pay and paid holidays, cap maternity pay by more than half, sell out NHS to the highest bidder, Cut tax for the richest and increase tax for the poorest. Now I'm adding on the UKIP list, repealing the minimum wage. I don't think this is something that you should be voting for. Instead, putting jobs, growth, economic stability at the heart of our work. This is what Labour European Parliament's uh, members are going to do. Hoping to continue pushing with the reforms, making the European Union work better for Britain by being active participants and listening to people on the ground. We are out listening, we are out door knocking, and we are encouraging you to help us change Europe for the better. Thank you. And Kathleen? Um, I just wanted to correct uh, a point that was made that Abu Hamza was a comic character. Abu Hamza, there's nothing comic about people like Abu Hamza and the ilk and his like. They would, people like him, would blow you and, uh, and I and all of us up at the drop of a hat. So there's nothing comic about people like him. And it was purgatory for Theresa May, the Home Secretary, to try and get him extradited in the first place. So I'd just like to correct that point, because I don't think there's anything light-hearted about somebody like that, because that's where they are. Uh, with regards to the relationship with Europe, uh, we have been active participants for all of these years. But I've lived in three other countries. I speak two other languages. I'm not sitting here as a Conservative who's anti-Europe and neither is the Conservative Party. We are the ones that have signed up to a lot of these treaties, actually, and we believe that we'll have done the right thing. But the problem is, as I explained from the outset, it's the way the institutions are trying to make everything prescriptive, they're trying to make it homogenous, they're trying to make every one size fits all, and that is not the right way forward because of where we all come from. So there's nothing wrong with a strong cooperation uh, the body of NATO is what has kept peace since World War II, and there's nothing that stops us having great cooperation with other countries and working closely in Europe with our allies in Europe and across the world. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with people moving and people living in other countries either. But if this continues in terms of the bureaucracy and the way things are they're trying to centralise everything and the catastrophic uh, performance of the Eurozone uh, crisis, because they hadn't thought of the end game with the euro, not least because none of the members of the euro had a mechanism called an interest rate that they could actually move around uh, with the fluctuation of their economies. And that's one of the, the key problems with the euro. There's no democratic accountability. Nobody comes to parliament in their parliaments to start discussing interest rates like they at least can do in the United Kingdom. So there's an awful lot that's been good. And there are critical, fundamental problems that are there in those structures. And that's why we're having this debate. That's why we're looking at areas that need to be pretty well repatriated and dealt with at national level and local level too. And then let's see where we are with some of these areas where we can certainly cooperate and continue cross-border and obviously continue to build our relationship with the rest of the world. And we're the ones that will give you a say.
Frank and Nora, final concluding thoughts. Okay. Um, well, in, in one way, I, I actually think that this question about whether we're in or out of the EU really isn't the most important um, political question that we're facing at the world, in the world at the moment. And I think, I don't think it, but I don't think it's an accident that that's the one that we seem to be talking about a lot because it, it provides a fantastic distraction. Here we are having a debate about this. And what, what we're not talking about is, is what's happening to, to all the wealth? Who's getting that? Who, who's, getting a, you know, who's getting their fair share and who isn't? Yep. And the kind of bigger questions that, that, we, that we ought to be thinking about. And I, don't, I also don't think it's a coincidence the, the particular parties that are, are making a big fuss about the, the in-out of the EU. Um, if, you, if you look at who makes up those parties, it tends to be people at, at, at one end of society, kind of at, at the top end in wealth terms. And I don't think it's surprising that they're, trying to, that they're trying to distract us from paying attention to kind of distributions of wealth and other very important issues with something um, that, that's more really about kind of fighting between ourselves. My friend put it very well when it comes to in and out of Europe. He says, we're basically being offered the choice between a banker's Europe and a banker's Britain. Um, I don't accept either of those choices, and, and that's why I've got involved with politics, is because I want to be able to help try and change those two options so we have something better to choose from. Um, as I said before, it, with the, the Europe question, you know, the, the EU could be a good thing if you had good people in it making good decisions, and it's a bad thing if you have bad people in it making bad decisions. The election on Thursday is not about whether we're in or out of Europe. That's the referendum that will hopefully come later. The, the election on Thursday is about who do you want to be representing you in Europe, presuming that we're going to have people representing us. So we are the candidates. Um, you can pick between us on Thursday, and I hope that you will go to the polls and make your vote. Okay, final statement. Governments can work together without political union. The UK in particular has been doing it for centuries, and the rest of Europe has been doing it for centuries. People do travel around Europe, and did do before the European Union arrived. The European Union is an institution that you just don't need. In 1962, the Macmillan government agreed with the opposition at the time to hide the fact that what they were proposing to join in 62 was a federal superstate in the making. That goes back to the point I made right at the beginning of about 1958 cabinet papers. In 1992, John Major inserted into the Maastricht Treaty the term ever closer union. And he did that because he wanted to hide from you the fact that the European Union was a federal project, because that's the word that the Europeans wanted to put in, the, in Maastricht, federal. But John Major thought that might frighten you all too much, or your parents too much. To pick up on something I said, UKIP's message is not to abolish the minimum wage. What I was talking about was looking at everything in the round, in whole terms, not just sound by politics, picking something because you think it'll be popular at the ballot box. If people had thought that through, they wouldn't have done it. They'd have strengthened legislation to deal with companies. And UKIP members are not a group of people. UKIP members are drawn from ex-conservatives, left, right of centre, ex-Labour Party members, left of centre, People have not voted for 20 and 30 years, and even Liberal Democrats are coming across now. So there is no group of people on the right or the extremes of anything in UKIP. UKIP is a balanced, centrist, modern party. Why did you call the US president sorry. Islam Obama? No, sorry, no comments in the audience. <coughs> the point is that UKIP is a sound, balanced organisation. We're the only people trying to give you an alternative to the three main parties. So I hope. <laughs> <laughs>
I hope you can be broad-minded enough to look at things in broader terms and maybe consider voting for UKIP in the, like, Thursday's elections. Thank you. Okay, can we have a big round of applause for all of us?